Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. During last week's insurrection at the United States Capitol, the mob used flags, signs, and symbols of racist and extremist groups as the ultimate assault on our nation's seat of government. This in glaring contrast to the capital as our symbol of democracy. Symbols are the subject of a recent book by Connor Town O'Neill. He explores zealots who cling to the Confederacy in Down Along with That Devil's Bones. Later this hour, the author will tell us about reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. First, theatrical outfit takes seriously the new in New Year. From new works to new collaborations and new staff members. Here to tell us more are theatrical outfit artistic director Matt Torney and the outfit's new associate artistic director, Adai Moon. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. Oh, wonderful to have you. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year. Uh, we're eager to hear about all these new developments. Would you talk a bit about Theatrical Outfit's partnership with working title playwrights, and the Unexpected Play Festival. Uh, absolutely, Lois. So, as you said, new year, new plays at uh, at Theatrical Outfit. I think the last time I was speaking with you, uh, I spoke a little bit about our Made in Atlanta new work program, where we're laying out a number of initiatives to support local playwrights and to develop ideas locally for production on our main stage. And the Unexpected Play Festival and the month of January is really when we're kicking all that off. We have four readings, one on each Thursday in January of a brand new play by an Atlanta-based playwright. 
And all of these playwrights are members of Working Title Playwrights, which is a collective um, that develops plays, offers workshops. It's basically like if whatever stage you are in your playwriting journey, if you want some help and support, uh, Working Title is, is, is the place to go. So we're delighted to partner with them and offer this series of, of ex really exciting new plays from multiple different perspectives. Um, and I think what makes the series really unique is that uh, you come and you hear the play and then immediately afterwards there's a feedback session with the playwright that's uh, moderated by Amber Bradshaw who's the managing artistic director of Working Title and she leads the audience through a discussion with the playwright to get some immediate feedback that the playwright can then incorporate into the next version of the script as they get it ready um, for production on the main stage so it is uh, like hands on process um, behind the scenes. It's, it's really like ideas that are, that are hot off the press. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. Tonight, you are presenting a reading of the play Memorial Day by Paul Donnelly. Would you give us a summary of the plot? So uh, Memorial Day deals with the AIDS crisis in the 90s. Um, and is really about the, the, the feelings of the loss and also of resilience in, in the gay community um, as they're coping with this growing crisis. It's really, it's both tender and funny and beautiful. And what's really interesting about the play is that Paul started writing it in 1993 to kind of cope with what was directly happening in his life. And then he put it in the drawer for 22 years and then in the last few years, it was sort of calling to him again to open it up and explore it. And, and what was amazing to me and the other readers on the panel was how much it feels like it's talking about today. Like this unique look back into the past and everything that has changed, both in Paul as a writer and in the world since the 90s. It just means this story resonates so beautifully with everything that we've been living through in, uh, in 2020. Mm. Yes, how interesting that the last plague was when he began the writing Memorial Day and the added meaning it, it must stick on now. It's something really special. And in fact, it's one of the things that is particularly interesting about the, the plays in, in this that we've curated for, for this festival is the relationship to time. So tonight you're going to hear Paul Donnelly, this play that is decades in the making, that is capturing American history and his history and his change. Last week, we had Well-Intentioned White People by Man Yvonne Jones, which was written within the last few months in direct response to the, the events of summer 2020, Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd protests. And then next week, we have a play that's set in New Orleans um, during COVID lockdown on two adjoining balconies, um, Raising the Dead by Aaron Considine. So to have just these extraordinary writers sharing stories that are both hot off the press and like long in gestation, um, I think makes for a really interesting month. I'm intrigued with the title, Unexpected Play Festival. What, yes. What what was unexpected about it? <laughs> well, I mean, this is one of those things about uh, be careful what you name your first festival because that's the, uh, so it's interesting. In in that, uh, I think in the original version, 
uh, of the festival, which, which uh, predated me. Uh, the idea was uh, plays that you wouldn't necessarily see in the main stage or that deal with things in, in unexpected and exciting ways. And now I think it's come to mean brand new plays, brand new ideas that have never been heard before. One of the things that we were talking to our audience about um, before the, the first uh, of our plays, Well-Intentioned White People last week, was that every single play in the world begins when a playwright sits down at a blank page. Like, however famous it is, from, from Hamlet <laughs> through Death of a Salesman, through the plays that have not yet been written, they all began in the same way with an idea that then becomes something. And, and I think what unexpected means to me, uh, or what it captures, is just that first encounter with a brand new idea. And I just think Atlanta audiences engaging with these plays is just such a wonderful and exciting opportunity to hear something that you've probably never heard before, or you've never heard before in this way, or has been chosen and curated specifically to kind of um, engage with what's going on in the present moment. Also, Lewis, I, I think unexpected has sort of evolved to mean this idea of inviting the audience in, inviting the audience into the development process, uh, where they get to experience a play in its early stages and then eventually seeing it on its feet with all the design elements and the actors. So the idea of, you know, what was previously, you know, things that might not be seen on TO's stages now has come to mean being a part of the birth of a play from the very beginning. The final play of this series is Pearl by Sonara Eastman. Adai, you are involved with this show in particular. What can you tell us about it? It is a really beautiful personal story for Sonara. It's based on her great-grandmother and her journey uh, at the sort of turn of the 20th century as a Black woman living in the South. Uh, trying to negotiate um, both the legacy of her family and this idea of being a landowner and a business owner. So um, for me, it sort of is a play that really is about uh, resistance and breaking free from people's expectations of you know what it is to be whatever identity you choose to identify as. So as Matt was saying earlier, I, I think it has, even though it's a period piece, it has a lot of contemporary resonance to it. The character Pearl is biracial, is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. So the identity is an issue or a concept that's developed within the story? Yeah, within the context of the story, she, she gets to meet her father, and without giving too much away, um, also is also negotiating the death of her mother and her relationship with uh, her siblings as well. So, yes, yeah, a really rich, beautifully told story. And given the state of our country, what does the play have to say about race and legacy? That the idea of, you know, one of America's, not America's original sin, but one of its original sins, which is enslavement um, and the transatlantic slave trade is something that we're still dealing with. And we're still dealing with the repercussions of that and the inequities that that 
uh, particular institution created. So um, yeah, you know, while things have changed, a lot of things haven't changed, and we still have so much work to do as a country. Oh yes, Matt, what does it mean for theatrical outfit to have a die moon on now <laughs> as your associate artistic director? We've had the pleasure of talking with Day and. He, seeing his marvelous work at the Atlanta History Center. Um, mm. this, this is all very exciting, and I was hoping each of you would talk about it. Uh, I'm delighted to talk about it. And we are, abso we are absolutely thrilled to have, have Adaya join the staff. Whenever we were conceiving of what we wanted an associate artistic director to do, there was two main areas of focus. Um, that we're both looking to the future of theatrical outfit and, and, and who we might be um, in Atlanta and what we might offer the community. And the first was to really intentionally develop relationships with playwrights and to develop new plays and exciting new ideas. And the other was to deepen our relationship with, with our audience and with uh, communities and groups across the city um, who, who who, who we felt aligned with our mission and, and who could enrich um, the experience of the work for, for all involved. So we, we, we did a national search. <laughs> so we spoke to people all over the country. We're like, right, what, what can you offer? What, what, what can you bring to the table to kind of help us accomplish these tasks? And um, when we spoke to Adaya, we were like, wow, that <laughs> is exactly what we need. Um, so, so he, he is a, a very deep artistic soul and a great love of, of playwrights and the new work process. But he also is just a really, really excellent human being who lives kindness and, and just sees the world with this authentic, like robust vision um, that I felt he was the perfect person to kind of help us grow as an organization, to, to look after artists and to nurture ideas from their, from their tender infancy to full productions. Um, and I just saw the kind of uh, scope and perspective that he would bring to the table. And I'm just so thrilled that he was able to join us right at the beginning of 2021. Adai, you bring multiple talents to the position. You are an accomplished playwright, dramaturg, director. Do you have goals you've already set in your new role? I, I think the first goal that I have is really just to sit back and listen. <laughs> and to... And that's a great one. Uh, and, and to really pay attention to the direction that the theater is trying to take, especially as it relates to uh, new play development and um, community outreach, which are the two elements that drew me to even apply to the position in the first place. I mean, I've, I've been doing new play development for years and it's one of my passions. And the idea of, you know, developing um, a canon of work that really speaks to the various narratives and perspectives of this city that I love so much uh, is something that really, really excites me. And um, making sure that the diversity of narratives really reflect the diversity of this city. So I'm psyched. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I have to congratulate both of you and I on assuming this new role and Matt for having the vision to further expand theatrical outfits reach. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. Thank you very much. Theatrical Outfits Unexpected Plays Festival continues tonight at 6.30 with Memorial Day, written by Paul Donnelly. More information on how to stream the play will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It seems ludicrous that in the state of Tennessee, there are more monuments to a slave trader and grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan than to all three of the state's presidents combined. Yet, the tributes to Confederate General Nathan B. Forrest can be found throughout the South. That was the inspiration behind Connor Town O'Neill's recent book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. I spoke with the author in October, ahead of a virtual book talk he gave with the Atlanta History Center. O'Neill began by explaining what led him to the topic in 2015. Of all things, it was a search for free parking that sent me down this rabbit hole about Nathan Bedford Forrest and and his monuments. Uh, So in March of 2015, I was in Selma, Alabama, covering the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which was the uh, attack in 1965 uh, by Alabama law enforcement on nonviolent demonstrators at the foot of uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge there in Selma, the late John Lewis among them. And 50 years later, President Obama was in town to give a speech and to cross over the bridge in remembrance. And along with him, some 40,000 other people showed up. So by the time I got to town, uh, and, and Selma's a pretty small city. So by the time I got there, you know, the downtown streets were packed. People were, you know, flooding over the sidewalks. Uh, and so I th- figured, oh, maybe I can find a, an out-of-the-way place to leave my car in the cemetery that's just a couple of blocks from downtown. And, and Selma, like a lot of southern towns, has this, you know, really old South-feeling cemetery, mausoleums, Spanish moss, the whole deal. So I pull in and it has its own system of roads there. And and as I'm driving through, I see these signs that say Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassing. And that really piqued my interest. That's sort of catnip for a reporter. So I just kind of wander over and, and, and start talking to the people who were there and come to realize that this group that owns this plot in the in the cemetery, the, the Friends of Forest, they call themselves, uh, had spent really the better part of the last two decades fighting uh, about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up. The juxtaposition, the dissonance of this encounter with the neo-Confederate group on a day of you know, a major civil rights anniversary 
it almost gave me whiplash and raised a bunch of questions about who Forrest was, what it meant to put up a statue of him in 2015, and you know what the persistent legacy of, of the Civil War was some 150 years later. And so I went down this rabbit hole about Forrest and, and his monuments. And just a couple months later, Dylan Roof murders nine parishioners of Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. And soon after he's apprehended, uh, photos from his blog circulate online. And it became clear that almost as a way to sort of steal himself uh, for this act of terrorism that he would commit, he took a sightseeing tour around South Carolina, visiting slave memorials, plantations, Civil War sites. Uh, and so in the aftermath of, of the Charleston Nine murders, this real referendum on Confederate symbols breaks out. Bree Newsom scales the flagpole of the South Carolina Capitol to remove the Confederate flag there. And you know, all across the South, campaigns break out to protest names of schools, the use of the Confederate flag, and of course, uh, Confederate monuments. And so as those campaigns started up, because of this encounter that I had had with the Friends of Forest just a few months earlier, I decided that I was going to follow some of these stories and follow the ones aimed at monuments of forest in particular. So that's been, you know, every working day for the last five years I've, have been, you know, running down leads and following stories that I found from this, you know, chance encounter in a, in a cemetery while I was looking for free parking. I like how you describe that as catnip for a reporter. Last year, you were one of the producers for the NPR podcast, White Lies, and the podcast examined the murder of Reverend James Reeb in Selma, Alabama, and uncovered the truth behind the acquittal of the three men who murdered him. How did your work on the podcast inform your approach to writing the book? Well, you know, in the most basic way, it was what was bringing me to Selma a lot and, and, and how I stumbled upon this story. When I met this neo-Confederate group in the, in the cemetery, they handed me a, a stack of Confederate propaganda that included a letter outlining the conspiracy theory about how essentially the, move, the civil rights movement had killed uh, James Reeve. And we spent a lot of time in the podcast um, you know, really deconstructing and, and decimating that that conspiracy theory. But it was, of course, the, the theory that the um, defense attorney used to uh, uh, lead to the acquittal of the men accused of killing Reeb. So really, it's it's been that the book is kind of a, a spinoff from some of the reporting that, that we were doing on, on white lies. But I think a lot of the questions raised about how we face our history and the, the, the ways that our unwillingness to tell the truth about the past and the really sort of terrifying nature of American history, our refusal to do that continues to have consequences for us in the, in the present. And so, you know, the, uh, the podcast took, you know, this moment from the, the civil rights movement and looked at the, the lies that people were telling themselves, the conspiracies that had, um, that had come up as almost a sort of coping mechanism to let people off the hook, a community off the hook even, uh, from having to face and be accountable to the, the violence in its past and the, the violence committed in order to try and maintain a society based on this racial hierarchy 
in a lot of ways, the book looks at a lot of the same questions. It just sort of moves them back a hundred years. So instead of looking at a moment or a figure from the civil rights movement, this is looking at a, a figure from, from the civil war, but it's asking a lot of those same questions. Why we aren't telling the truth about who Forrest was and what his legacy represents. This is a man who, like you say, was a slave trader, an accused war criminal during the war, the first grand wizard of the Klan after the war, operated a, a convict leasing plantation, uh, a system that's known as slavery by another name. So in, in, in sort of every phase of his life, he was committed to upholding this racial hierarchy um, and, and to benefit from that materially. And yet, like you say, the landscape of the South is flooded with monuments of him trying to honor him. Um, and to sidestep the, the thornier questions about what it means to remember him and to not just remember him, but to honor him in the present. You mentioned the word deconstruct, and I'm not trying to get into any literary theory here, but that came to my mind in the portion of the book where you cite Derek Alderman a professor of cultural geography at the University of Tennessee, saying that the monuments were built for the purposes of communicating who mattered in Southern society and who mattered within American society. You can think of them as monuments to the power of the people who erect them, rather than as solely of the person depicted. This is striking, Connor. Would you elaborate on how monuments are as much, if not more, for the living than the dead? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's important there. We can sometimes get so habituated to them the, the monuments of the places that we live can sort of fade into the background of the skyline almost. And, and it's easy to think of them as always having been there and it, that it's just inevitable that they are there. But of course, they're not. You know, they they were put up at a particular moment. And especially if they're on public property, putting them up would require a certain amount of economic power and certainly political power as well. I mean, obviously, they seek to uh, remember someone from the past, but you can't just put up a monument, right? It, it, it does require some exertion of power. And in exerting that power, you're deciding for a town, a city, a state, uh, a university, who's worthy of being remembered in the moment that you're remembering them. Um, not everyone gets a monument. And so you can look at the landscape and think, okay, who gets remembered and when are they being remembered as a reflection of the values of the society in those moments in the present. So uh, for example, uh, the, the big 30 foot bronze equestrian statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that was in Memphis uh, doesn't go up in 1877 when he died in that city, but rather goes up in 1905, you know, decades later. Uh, and by that point, you know, 50 years after, almost 50 years after the, the war had ended, and that moment matters. And it's not a coincidence that it goes up in that moment. That's a moment, uh, you know, that same year, Memphis uh, segregates its streetcars. And it's in the aftermath of Ida B. Wells's uh, groundbreaking reporting on uh, racial terror lynchings that, that were taking place in Memphis the previous decade. So they're about the Civil War and they seek to honor 
this general from the Civil War, but they're also responding to the particular moment that they're going up just as much. And they're a reflection of the, the powerful men, the powerful white men in Memphis in 1905 who wanted that statue to go up. And of course, made no secret about it when they dedicated the statue. One of the state senators who spoke at that statue's dedication said that, you know, Forrest will fight for us and as long as there's a drop of Anglo-Saxon blood. So they were really making it clear the sort of racial uh, overtones of this statue. It wasn't just about, you know, remembering the Civil War. No, um, and, and indeed, you make the point clearly that the majority of Confederate statues were built in the Jim Crow era between the 1890s and the 1950s. <laughs> Something that occurred to me while reading that was the fact that there is no counterpart for these Confederate monuments in Germany or in South Africa. I mean, it is, there certainly has been a rise of populism throughout Europe. There has been a far right that's taken hold in Germany and other Western European countries. There are no monuments to Eichmann or any of the SS, the Nazi commanders. There aren't even, to my knowledge, World War II generals who have statues in Germany. Why does our country allow this? I think because the unwillingness to see reconstruction through. So of course, you know, the, these Confederate monuments are, are monuments to the losers of the war, but in, a, in, an ideal, in an ideological sense, the South didn't really lose the Civil War. They lost the military conflict, but ideologically, it's harder to argue that the South really lost. So you're right. If, if you look at losers don't get to put up statues, but in this case, they did. And I think that's because in the aftermath of the, of the Civil War during Reconstruction, there was this, this fleeting, you know, about a decade of time in which the country was really grappling with the consequences of the war um, and asking the question that that had made the war, you know, come, which was you know, if a, a, a settler and slave society could transform itself into a multiracial democracy. And so you see in Reconstruction's effort towards efforts toward really making that happen, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, vesting the formerly enslaved with uh, equal protection under the law, political rights, voting rights. And yet, that's short-lived, and it's short-lived in large part because of forces like the Ku Klux Klan, which Forrest was the, the grand wizard of, the first grand wizard of, really undermining those efforts. And by 1877, with the brokered election, the North and the South are really ready to sort of pack up shop on this effort to really transform the country into that multiracial democracy and instead allow the former Confederates to return to power and to re-implement policies that protect the racial hierarchy as it existed before the war. So you have things like convict leasing, sharecropping, poll taxes, other ways of disen voter disenfranchisement. And it's at that moment, once the former Confederates have returned to power, these statues start going up. Uh, to they start having the, the political capital to 
put up statues to their heroes. So yeah, so the, the Confederates lost the, the military conflict. They surrender at Appomattox, but ideologically speaking, it's the Confederacy has had a much longer tail and, and the Confederate statues that we're still dealing with are a reflection of that, just as you know, so many of the inequities that we have in this country are, are part of that long tail of the Confederacy. Author Connor Town O'Neill discussing his new book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the author Connor Town O'Neill, recorded in October. His recent book is Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. This past spring and summer, with the reckoning with racism, the global reckoning, there were many protests around the removal of Confederate monuments. What did you learn in all of this research that doesn't surprise you about why there is this clinging to a memory of terror? I think we cling to these monuments and the the attitudes reflected in them because they don't want to hold us accountable. The Confederate monuments, I think, in a way, reflect an attitude toward the past that we can only uh, we only have to think about the past in ways that flatter us or in ways that you know reflect positively on us. So, you know, if you ask people why they want a statue of Forrest to stay up, they say, well, because he was a great military commander uh, or because he was a self-made man. And the, the sort of magical thinking required to only think about Forrest in those terms, I think is really seductive. And I think is in one way or another seductive for, for lots of people, uh, regardless of their feelings about Forrest specifically. Because I think we've inherited a drastically unequal, violent, in a lot of ways, sort of morally bankrupt society. <laughs> and thinking about the past, thinking about the, you know, the ways that the system of slavery was physical and, and spiritual torture and essentially built 
the modern economy, uh, enriched people in the North as well as the South, how the lie that people in the North and the South were telling to justify that system, that in the enslaved people were inherently inferior. That lie, of course, is going to persist long after emancipation, looking at all of the policies throughout the years that have continued that racial hierarchy and meant to protect the racial hierarchy from the Homestead Act to who's included or left out of the Social Security Act, who gets FHA loans, uh, who's eligible for the GI Bill, who is the target of predatory lending in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis. There's a, a long lasting injury that is a result of this lie that we've told ourselves about white supremacy and black inferiority. And so if you look at the past and, and see that we should be held accountable to that past, then we need to change. Confederate monuments tell us that we don't need to change, that when we look backwards, we should see things that flatter us and that don't hold us accountable or responsible, but instead say, you know, yes, our, our past flatters us. And, and this is American exceptionalism 101 in a lot of ways. You know, we're, we're constantly making this union more perfect, where progress is inevitable, we're always getting better. But I think when there's a referendum on Confederate monuments, there's, that suggests a deeper referendum on, on how we look to the past and, and, and what the past might lead us to do to confront the inequities that, that persist to this day. We've talked a great deal about the South, about the Confederate monuments in the South. You don't let Northerners off the hook, Connor. Equally dispiriting is what you bring to this story as a Northerner. Would you talk about that? Yeah, so I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and the, the southern end of that county is the, the Mason-Dixon line. And I think that that line, we think about re in a really convenient way in the North. This sort of received wisdom is that, you know, oh, we're, we're in the North and, and race, insofar as it's still a problem in America, is just, a, you know, a problem in people's hearts and mostly is just a problem down there. And the Civil War, that's, you know, we're, we're affiliated with the Union Army, the great emancipators. So by extension, then, of course, racism and the Confederacy, all of that is tied together. And that's, and that's, that's stuff for down there. The great writer Robert Penn Warren called it the, uh, the treasury of virtue, you know, sort of disdainfully <laughs> describing the Northerners' attitude that they're sort of unimpeachable and that they don't have this, this history of the war doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with them. And I certainly felt that that growing up. That's, again, really convenient, but it's just, it's just not true. You know, if you look at the ways that that Northerners were heavily and, 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 and deeply invested in the slave system, we're, we're making massive profits from it, developing all of these sorts of financial instruments to make even more profit from it. I mean, the great historian, Edward Baptist documents this in incredibly and in, in, in devastating detail. And the half has never been told. I mean, reading that book, I think, really opened up my eyes to see that that the, the deep financial stake that that the North had in this slave system. We really flatter ourselves by thinking that you know, just because we can claim the Union Army, that we can somehow be exempt from uh, from the legacy of slavery. Uh, we really can't. And of course, you know, looking at an even deeper history that. My family likes to think about it in, in really positive terms. Um, we, you know, we have descendants on the Mayflower family history that touches the 
Salem witch trials, this long, you know, sort of the, the Puritan origins of New England. And that we, you know, we like to think of that in terms of the enlightenment, this new birth of freedom that, that we helped create in this, in, in the new world, being devout Christians and, and, you know, helping to establish these ideas of liberty and freedom that the country would be built on. But this working on this project really prompted me to, to reevaluate those stories that we were telling ourselves and, and to look in, a, in a, a more honest way, in a more sobering way, of course, at the ways that the settlement of, of the, those British colonies was genocidal and that we had these ideas of who we were and who others were. And this, you know, the, the inherent inferiority of the native peoples that we are displacing and murdering. Half of the wealth of colonial New England is coming from you know, sugar plantations, enslaved people in sugar plantations in the West Indies. So in so many ways, we're, we're complicit in these systems and we're building societies based on this hierarchy um, that we're justifying in different ways, whether through Christianity or through, you know, this, this presumed inferiority of the, the men and women that we were enslaving and profiting from. So working on this book just blew up so many of the the lies that I was telling myself about about our past and and how that past was was shaping our present. Yeah, the North is not off the hook. No. You began this journey in 2015 when, as you told us, President Obama gave the speech at the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. It's such a stunning memory to picture the Obamas linked in arms with John Lewis marching across that bridge. Five years later now, does the book have new meaning for you or added layers for you in the events of this year, other than the birth of your darling daughter? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, of course, after a summer of, of, of monuments coming down, <laughs> I, I wish that I could still still be writing. They had to really pry the book out of my hands uh, to send it to the printers uh, for, the, you know, during the last sweep of copy editing. I was still trying to, <laughs> to write new chapters. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it, it added to the poignancy and, and, and the power of the images that we've seen in different cities of these these monuments coming down, uh, especially the ones that in in which they were taken down just as a, a a sort of organic expression of the will of the people. In a lot of cities, people are done asking to take these monuments down and are just going out, um, you know, with chains tied to the back of pickup trucks, with flamethrowers, with tire irons, uh, with paint, with sledgehammers, and just doing it themselves. And I think that, that that's really powerful as an expression of, of a collective will that has just lost any sort of patience with this process. You know, a lot of the stories that I followed for the book uh, involved uh, activists trying to proceed as the way allows and, you know, wanting to work through the channels, whether that's city council, state governments, you know, university administrators, uh, to, to, to sort of appeal to the morality of these institutions and get them to see uh, the, the, the horrific and violent history that these, that these statues represent and to ask them, you know, in, in, in good conscience to, to take them down. 
but in so many cases were refused. And so I think what one of the things we see this summer is just a, a feeling like we're done asking and, and they're, they're coming down. And understanding that those removals in the context of just a sort of a revolutionary gesture rather than just a sort of bureaucratic gesture, I think has been really powerful to see. You mentioned the speech that President Obama gave on the, at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the, the day that you know really kicked kicked off the the story that this book tells, and I think that this year has been a really good reminder that progress is not inevitable. I think some people like to a lot of a lot of white people too. I think if I can generalize, <laughs> like to think about the civil rights history as race used to be a problem. Brave men like Martin Luther King stood up and marched and, you know, solved it. And, and it doesn't really have much to do with us. And, and of course, the bridge in Selma, the, the, the metaphorical meaning of that bridge, crossing over progress, progress fulfilled, I think is really tempting. But what I think this year reminds us is that that's not in all, at all inevitable and that it, you know, we, we constantly have to fight for it. And any gains that we make, any progress we get, any, any <laughs> policies that can uh, address the, the sorts of inequities that we have in this country, are, are, we need to fight for tooth and nail and, and, and won't come you know, because it's predestined to come, but it, it comes because people were willing to fight for it. That was certainly true in the case of, you know, the the movement in Selma. I don't think anyone thought it was inevitable that that they would secure voting rights during those demonstrations. Um, but they were willing to, you know, as John Lewis was willing to get his, his skull fractured to fight for that. And I think that that we can take lessons from that moment. But one of them shouldn't be that that progress is inevitable, that, that it's a it's a constant fight. So we've got our work cut out for us in terms of the fights that lay ahead. Or as you eloquently expressed at the end of the book, simply knowing our history cannot redeem us, cannot, as they say in Selma, get us to the beyond. Mm, that's right. Yeah. That line comes from a, a slogan in Selma, from, from civil war to civil rights and beyond. And as, as one of the activists who was protesting the, the forest statue in Selma uh, pointed out to me, you know, we haven't gotten to the beyond yet. And those are the sorts of fights that we've still got to dig in for. Author Connor Town O'Neill. His recent book is Down Along with That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Bombshell, an ethical fashion brand offering contemporary West African clothing and merchandise made in Liberia, opened its first store in the United States, and it's here in Atlanta. The shop opened in October, and it's located in Pont City Market. I spoke with the owner, Arshel Bernard, via Zoom, and asked about her inspiration for creating the Bombshell Factory and Mango Rags Boutique. Well, Mango Rags was my first business. I started selling clothes out of the trunk of my car because I couldn't afford to make to buy the clothes that I wanted to wear. 
So I just started to make them and people saw me on social media and they liked what I was wearing and they wanted some. So I saw it as a business opportunity. So for a year I was selling dresses out of the back of my car and then I saved up enough to open a shop. So Mango Rags opened in 2013 in Monrovia and it was so much fun. But at our one year anniversary, I remember hearing the first time of Ebola and what it was doing in rural Liberia. I did not feel like it was going to affect me in the city. And then it really did. So Mango Rags had to close after about a year and a half. And I came to the States and I looked around and I saw the real disruptors and the real people who were creating anything worth talking about were creating things that involved the community. And I realized that my business was a selfish business and I needed to find a way to center myself and see how I could help others. So I went back to Liberia after Ebola had slowed down and I opened the bombshell factory in 2016 so that I could hire and train women from backgrounds of poverty who wanted to work in fashion, but maybe didn't feel like they could, similar to me because we were in Liberia and nobody was looking at Liberia for fashion. So it's been really exciting to bring beautiful things from our small little country to you know Hollywood celebrities and, and also just beautiful, strong women all over the world. <laughs> now you graduated from Georgia Tech, correct? Yes. What did you study? I was, they don't even have my major anymore, but I was in the liberal arts college. My major is science, technology, and culture. So I studied this because I wanted to be the West African Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) I thought that I would post videos, you know, and travel Africa like that. And um, it didn't work out that way, but I'm just grateful for the experiences. I have a feeling Oprah would approve of what you're doing. Have you ever approached her? Um, You know, it's funny. I don't think she and I shop at the same supermarket, but uh, if ever (laughs) you heard about me, I mean, you know, I think that the lasting lesson that she has imparted on me is, you know, it's not so much about what you're doing in front of the camera. It's about how you're making people feel and how you're impacting people's lives. And so that has been the big piece for me, right? I just want to make sure that I have a huge impact on everyone that I touch. Why Liberia? Why did you move there? My family, we're Liberian refugees. So my mother and father grew up in Liberia and left because of the war. And my grandfather stayed in Liberia for a a long time. For me, when I graduated, I wanted to connect with home. In so many ways, I feel like I went back to hopefully see him, even though he had passed. Uh, And so I I go and, you know, as I build my business, sometimes I have conversations with him in my head, like, would he be proud of the way that I'm doing things? Or what would that advice be? Liberia was once such a shining example of an independent African Republic. And now we're consistently the poorest. I know that we as people are stronger and better than what we may seem to be right now. And I wanted to be a part of that, that story. 
Let's talk about the name of the store. It's sort of a throwback. The word bombshell, you know, brings images of Marilyn Monroe to mind. It's sort of a mid-20th century term for uh, sexy beauty. Yours is spelled B-O-M-B-C-H-E-L. And why do you call the employees the bombshells? Well, I call employees bombshells and I call our customers bombshells because I really want to emphasize how connected we all are. We can't separate our makers from the purchasers because I think that that has a lot to do with putting space between us so that we don't care about the conditions that our clothes are made in. We have to know that we are all the same. I call everybody a bombshell. So whether you wear one, wear our clothes or you make our clothes, you are a bombshell because you're contributing to this new narrative for amazing, beautiful pieces coming out of West Africa that I don't think many people would think of without our factory. And in fact, then, bombshell with the C-H-E-L derived from your name is, is somewhat ironic, although empowering. Yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up in North Cobb. We were the only Black family in the neighborhood and therefore for sure the only African family. And, you know, my name was always weird. Like, I could never get a birthday card with the name spelled right or could never find a mug or a keychain with my name on it. And every year I tried to reinvent myself or make my name more simple so that I wouldn't stand out as much. I went by Shelby for the longest. Oh, Art Shell is so much more elegant. I know. I went by Shelby for the longest because I just wanted to fit in, you know? I just really wanted to fit in. But the importance for me of spelling bombshell in that funky way that my name is spelled is that I'm saying, you know, this is it. I'm going to, you guys are going to learn my name. You're going to learn how to spell it. You're going to learn how to say it, you know? And it's just going to be okay. And for all the other girls who have super weird names, they'll learn how to spell it, they'll learn how to say it, and it's going to be okay. Arshel Bernard, the owner of Bombshell, an ethical fashion brand offering contemporary West African clothing at Pond City Market. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., a self-guided walking tour of important sites for the King holiday. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.